Today I'm beginning a brand new series, and what I'm going to start talking about is the difference between blessings and miracles. And what I'm really going to be describing is how you receive from God. Most people don't recognize that God has two different ways of meeting your needs. One is through a miracle. The other one is through a blessing. Now, I know that most people haven't really sat down and and seriously considered this. We just see a need, and so we ask God to meet it, and we don't even think about how is it that He's going to meet this need. But it's important for you to recognize this because a miracle and a blessing operate differently. Now, again, I know that most of you may not be relating totally to this, but as I go through this series, I think you're going to see a real significant difference here. And actually, uh, let me just present it to you this way. If I had two doors behind me right now, if you could just imagine that, and if one of them was labeled a miracle and the other one was labeled a blessing and you had to choose which way you wanted to receive from God, what would you choose? Well, probably, if you're typical, most of you would choose a miracle. You just want God to perform a miracle. But you know what? There's a number of things that are different between a miracle and a blessing. And if you understand this properly, the better way, the best way to receive from God is through a blessing. It's not through a miracle. Now, I know some of you may be shocked. And some of you, especially if you aren't familiar with my program, may be thinking, well, boy, you don't believe in miracles today. That is not what I'm saying. I have received miracles personally. I have prayed for other people, seen miracles happen. But you know what? Miracles aren't really God's best. Now, that needs a little qualification because if you're in a crisis situation and if you haven't got the time to start putting all of the laws of the kingdom in process that are involved in operating in the blessing, then a miracle may be the best for you at the moment. But overall, all things being equal, it is much better to have God meet your needs by a blessing than it is to have a miracle performed. You know, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Which would you rather have? A miracle of healing or to be so blessed that you never get sick? See, would you rather... Would you rather be the kind of person that just has sickness comes, but every time you pray, God performs a miracle and you get miraculously healed? Or would you rather learn how to cooperate with God and walk in the things of God so that, like Proverbs 17:22 says, a merry heart does good like a medicine. Honoring your father and mother will cause you to live long upon the land. And on and on and on all of the scriptures go. You begin to start cooperating with all of those and the blessing of God can function in your life to where you don't even get sick. Which would you rather have? The blessing of God that prevents sickness? Or would you rather just stumble through, have sickness and all of these problems come at you but then learn how to believe God so that you can receive a miraculous cure? Well, any way that you receive from God is good, but I'm saying that it is better to learn how to walk in the blessings of God and prevent sickness than it is to learn how to get a miracle from God to overcome sickness and disease and all of these kind of things. Here's another example. Which would you rather have? The ability to believe God and stand and confess for six months and then boom, all of a sudden you get a car miraculously given to you? 
Now that would be great. And most people would say, wonderful. But you know what I'd rather have? I'd rather be so blessed by God that if I need a car, I can just go buy one. It's not a problem. And I'm not talking about just going and buying one on credit. I'm talking about being so blessed that if you need a car, you just go buy one. Now that is what the blessing of God will do. Let me give you a couple of differences between a miracle and a blessing. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to reteach these things and prove this by Scripture but I'm just trying to get into this and give you an overview of some of the benefits of this so that you will open up your heart and receive these truths. But here's a number of differences between a blessing and a miracle. A miracle, first of all, has to have a crisis before God will grant a miracle. As I said, I'm going to explain this more in detail. But a miracle is not the norm. I mean, if you look the word miracle up in a dictionary, it means extraordinary, exceptional. It is a superseding or a suspension of natural laws. It is not just normal. So miracles aren't going to be just normal. They aren't going to be commonplace. They aren't going to be everyday. They are for extreme circumstances or you could say crisis. So to get a miracle, you just about have to be in a crisis before you get a miracle. Therefore, people who live from miracle to miracle are people who are going to live from crisis to crisis. Now, all of us have crisis in our life at some time or another, and so I'm not saying it's wrong to get a miracle, but I'm saying to develop a miracle mentality to where you just expect it all of the time means that you're going to be a person who lives from crisis to crisis, from problem to problem. In contrast to that, a blessing, once the blessing of God comes upon you, the blessing of God will prevent crisis. Going back to this financial illustration that we were talking about, You know, uh, if you're one of these people that haven't yet learned about the blessing of God on you financially, and if you haven't learned how to tap into it and to receive that finance, well, then you might be the type of person that comes, your rent comes due, your mortgage payment comes due, or your your car payment or insurance payment or whatever it is, you've got these payments that come due. You cry out to God and you get a miracle. I mean, just boom, somehow or another, supernaturally, God blesses you with this finance. But you know what? It's not going to be such an abundance that you'll never have another problem. Matter of fact, most people that are having financial problems and pray and get a miracle, well, then next month, you need another miracle. And then the next month, you need another miracle. And you just live from crisis to crisis. But see, if you can understand that God has already blessed you with all spiritual blessings and physical and financial blessings, and if you learned how to cooperate with that and get this divine flow of the blessing of God flowing in your life, then you'll reach a place to where you don't ever have to consider finances. It's not an issue. Now that's a major point. You know, let me just use a personal illustration here. When Jamie and I first got married and I started into the ministry, I I think the biggest mistake that I've ever made in my life is the way that I approached full-time ministry. I don't know exactly all the reasons, but for whatever reasons, I thought that you couldn't be 
serving God with all of your heart if you worked a secular job. You just had to commit yourself and go full-time in the ministry. Now, that's not accurate. I don't recommend that you do that, but I'm saying that because of that mindset, see, I wasn't cooperating with the blessing that God has spoken over His children, and especially over His ministers. The Lord says those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And I believe, this is me reading between the lines, but I believe it's all implied in there, that this means when you preach the gospel, you should live proportional to how much you're preaching the gospel. If you're holding one Bible study a week, you shouldn't expect to live full-time of the ministry. But when you get to where you're ministering to people and literally you could not take advantage of all of the opportunities that God has given you if you worked a secular job. When the demands of the ministry get to where they're full-time, you can expect to live full-time of the ministry. But back in the beginning, I didn't understand that. And because of it, I wasn't cooperating with what the Word of God says. It wasn't an intentional uh, disobedience or rejection. But nonetheless, you know, I just wasn't ministering enough to see full-time support from the ministry. And so because of this... Uh, my finances were hindered. And we prayed and we had God supply us with money in the mail. We had miracle after miracle after miracle happen. You know, I remember when my first son Joshua was just about to be born and uh, it was going to cost us $600 for the entire doctor, hospital, bills, everything. Total cost was $600. Now that'll show you how long ago that was if any of you are aware of what it costs today. But that was the total cost. But you know what? I didn't have it. And as a matter of fact, that was one of the real crises in my life. I literally came close to giving up because I had done everything I knew trying to get the money to pay for the birth of my son and things weren't working and I was just ready to quit and give up. It's a long story. It's another story. But the Lord miraculously sent someone across my path and encouraged me. I stood and proclaimed, praise God, it's going to happen. And I mean the next day or maybe the day after, just within a day or two, I had a Bible study group that I had ministered at a year before, a hundred miles away. And they, you know, I hadn't had any contact with them or whatever, but just boom, supernaturally, they sent me exactly the $600 that we needed for the birth of our son. But, it, you know, that was just one thing right there. I didn't have enough money. Matter of fact, my wife and I had lost our home, the house that we were renting in because we couldn't make the payments. And when my firstborn son was born, we were actually living with my in-laws. And it wasn't a bad situation. They were glad to have us. But nonetheless, it was humiliating for me. And even with that and us not having to pay rent, I didn't have any money for anything. The day that my son was born and I was driving back to the house after uh, it was a, you know, a birth that happened real early in the morning, and so I was driving back to the house after being up all night long, I didn't have enough gas to get back to the house. And I didn't know what to do. And I knew, I mean, I was running out of gas. And so I just coasted into this service station and I didn't know what to do. And I don't recommend this. I am not telling you that this is what you're supposed to do. I'm just telling you about how desperate my situation was and what God did for us. I coasted in there 
And I didn't know what to do. But you know what? I went ahead and put that nozzle in my gas tank and started filling my gas tank on faith. I guess most people would say this is stupidity or presumption. But I did it on faith that God was just going to somehow or another miraculously supply the need. Now, I don't think that that's smart. But I'm just, it was desperate and, you know, desperate times called for desperate measures. So here I was pumping gas in my car and I didn't have any money. I mean, zero money. And I certainly didn't have a bank account. I couldn't write a check. I didn't have a credit card. There was no way to pay for this gas. And while I was filling my car up, a man walked out and it turned out he was a friend of mine. It was a guy that I knew. He was a Christian friend. And it turned out he owned this gas station. I didn't know that. And we got to talking, and he says, so what are you doing today? And I said, well, my son was just born. And he said, oh, wonderful. He says, well, let this tank of gas be on me. He says, this will be my gift to you. And I didn't tell him, but man, thank you, Jesus. Uh, I mean, I had miracles like this happen all of the time. People would come and leave food on our doorstep, and just things would happen. I remember one time Jamie and I went to the uh, supermarket, And all we had was $7, and we went shopping. Now, we had a lot of coupons with us, and I mean, she had done her research and homework. But nonetheless, we got those big old paper bags like this, three of them that were full, and we had meat in there, we had steaks, we had a lot of things, not cheap stuff. And $7 bought us three grocery sacks full of food. You know, I don't know how that happened. I mean, you can't use that many coupons. I don't know how it happened. It was a miracle. But we had God multiply things. We had miracles happening all of the time. Now, that was great in a sense. But, you know, 20-something years later, I remember I was driving down the road and I got to thinking about, God, it has been years. It's been over a decade, maybe two decades, since I've seen you miraculously do things like this. I mean, our car at one time, I didn't have enough money to keep antifreeze in the car the way that I should. And so during the winter, the uh, water froze, cracked the block. You could see the crack in the block and water poured out. And, you know, I just laid hands on that car because I had no money to do anything else and prayed over it and blessed it. And I drove that car another year with a cracked block. I don't know how that worked. I remember running out of gas one time in downtown Dallas and it was... Uh, we pulled off on the middle of one of those freeways and it was cold. And this is after we had our son with us and he was just a little baby and it was late at night and we didn't have any money and we didn't have anything else to do. And out of desperation, I just laid hands on that car and commanded it to run. And after it had already run out of gas and we were on the side of the road, God multiplied that gas and we drove for another week without gas until we got enough money to be able to put gas in that car. And, you know, here I was 20 years later thinking, God, I haven't seen miracles like this happen in nearly 20 years. I haven't seen you multiply our gas. I haven't had people just come and bring food and leave it on our doorstep. We haven't had to have our car. I haven't laid hands on it and just seen it miraculously work and stuff like this. And I was beginning to feel a little concerned about, you know what, I'm not experiencing the miracles of God as much as I used to. And while I was thinking about this, the Lord spoke to me. And He says, would you like to go back to those days? (laughs) Would you rather go back to those days when you couldn't put gas in your car? Or would you rather be so blessed now that any time you need gas, you just go get it? 
Would you rather be to a place that if you've got a cracked block that you can go to somebody and have them replace that engine or do whatever? Would you rather be to a place where you can get a good car and you don't have to deal with things like this? Well, that was a no-brainer. Man, I knew. Praise God, I'd rather be where I am. And you know what? I begin to see that there's a difference between living by miracles and living by blessings. Miracles just don't happen every single day. So for you to get a miracle, your situation has to have already got deteriorated to a crisis situation. On the other hand, a blessing is something that is God's normal way of meeting a need and it is the more predominant way and a blessing will actually prevent these crises. So a person who learns how to live under the blessing of God will be a person who will live in more abundance. They will avoid the crisis that people that live from miracle to miracle operate in. And so in that sense, a blessing really is a better way to receive from God. You know, if you just look at it this way, if you were to turn over to the book of Genesis and just read the first chapter and how God created everything and how He set it up so perfectly, He didn't just create trees and create grass and create animals and create people, but when He created them, then He blessed them. There's a number of times over here that it says that. Let me just read some of this out of Genesis chapter 1. This is the uh, creation account. And let me just take a couple of instances. Here in Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 21. Or let me back up to um, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth upon... Uh, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And so God created all of these uh, sea creatures and then he blessed them by saying, be fruitful and multiply. God not only created these animals, but then He blessed them, gave them divine favor and the ability to reproduce, the ability to function, the ability to operate independent, but yet under the blessing of God. The Lord did the same thing with people. Down here in the 26th verse, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Here again, God created mankind and blessed them by saying unto them and gave them authority and power, told them that they had the ability to reproduce. You know, this is one of the ways that you discern whether something is really a living organism or not. 
scientists will claim that they have created life sometime because they will bring some uh, amino acids together and combine them in a way that it has the same chemical structure as a living uh, cell or something like that. But mankind has never been able to create anything that can reproduce, which is the bottom line definition on what true life is. Man cannot create life. Now, they can take something that already has life in it and clone it, but I mean man cannot, has not created life. When the Lord created the original creatures, He gave them the ability to reproduce, which is a foundational, basic definition of what true life is. And He did that by blessing them. And anyway, I'm going to come back and talk about these very verses later on in this teaching. But one of the points that I'm wanting to get across here is that when God created the heavens and the earth, He created them perfectly. He created the climate just right. He created everything that was in balance. He blessed His creation. And originally, God's plan was for everything to just flow through this blessing. There would have been no crisis, no problems, none of these things. Therefore, I want you to think about this. It was not really God's intention for miracles to take place. Miracles are a byproduct of sin. Now, since sin has entered the world and there is corruption and there's all these kind of problems, well, then there is no doubt, there's no contest for me that miracles are necessary. And Jesus used miracles like a bell to draw people after Him to prove who He was. He told His church that we are supposed to represent Him. We will do the same works that He did. And there is a place for miracles. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But actually, it's not God's best. God's best is that if people wouldn't have disobeyed and have fallen into sin and have yielded themselves to Satan, there never would have been sickness Therefore, there never would have been a need for a miraculous healing. If people never would have disobeyed, if they would have still been living in a sinless state, then there never would have been poverty and financial problems and money problems and there wouldn't have been a need for a miraculous uh, financial miracle. If people hadn't have started operating in strife, if they would have continued in the love and under the uh, way that God created things to be, there wouldn't have been war There wouldn't have been a need for miracles in war. There wouldn't have been divorce and miracle reconciliations and all of these kind of things. So the point that I'm making is miracles are actually not God's original intent. He basically created our body so that doctors have looked at our body and our body has the ability to heal itself. It has the ability to replace and to do things and do all of this stuff that needs to be done. Technically, I've read that doctors say there is the potential in the human body that we should be able to live forever. They can't totally figure out why the body with all of these capabilities isn't able to live forever. Well, the reason is, is because we got out from under the blessing of God and submitting unto Him and believing Him, we yielded ourselves to Satan who is the author of death and death has worked in all of us ever since then. But I'm saying that, see, God originally intended that the blessing of God would just function and it would keep us healthy, it would keep us prosperous, it would keep all of these things going. And so it's really... 
just because of mankind's rebellion towards the way that God originally set things up that we even have a need for miracles. And let me just say this, that to the degree that we receive our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and then begin to renew our mind and to walk back under the leadership and the control of the Spirit of God, to that degree we can get back once again into flowing in the blessings of God that will actually prevent problems in our life instead of waiting until things are so out of whack that we're in a crisis situation and have to have a miracle from God. I don't know if you got that or not, but that's a powerful truth. Here's a second reason about why a blessing is better than a miracle, and that is that a miracle is never as abundant as a blessing. Now, some of you may say, well, where did you get that from? Well, just going back to scriptural examples, for time's sake, I'm not going to turn over there right now. I'll, I'll deal with these things and we'll go into more detail later on. But let me just refer to the miracle of the manna falling out of heaven and the Lord fed the children of Israel during their time in the wilderness uh, with this manna. You know, miracles, I've already said this, are temporary. Or excuse me, that's another point I'm going to make, the third point. But miracles are always temporary, whereas a blessing, once it's given, is eternal. The longest temporary miracle in the Bible is this manna that God fed the children of Israel with for 40 years. It lasted for 40 years. Now, that's a pretty long, temporary miracle. But that really is unusual. Most miracles are just momentary. They're just very short-term. Like when Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still, and it stayed still for nearly a day's period of time. That's an absolute miracle. That supersedes all natural laws that we can understand. I don't understand exactly what happened. I'm not sure that the earth quit turning because if it did, all of the seas would have washed over the entire world. Who knows how God did this? I can't understand it, but that's the reason I'm not God. And however God did it, I believe He came by it honestly. And so I don't question it. I believe it just like the Scripture says. That was a miracle. But you know what? It was only temporary. It didn't even last a full day. Most miracles, Jesus walking on the water, Peter walking on the water, that wasn't something that he did all of the time. It wasn't a long-term thing. It was just a brief, momentary deal. You know, Jesus multiplied the food and fed the 5,000. That just happened during an hour or so period of time. And I believe if you would have taken the fragments that were taken up after feeding those 5,000 men, and if you would have tried to break them and multiply them again, it wouldn't have worked. That, That food didn't last forever. It just was a temporary miracle. Most miracles are very... Well, let me say this. All miracles are temporary and relatively very short period of time in their duration. The miracle of the manna was the longest miracle recorded in Scripture that I can think of. And yet in that situation, just look at this. The manna was not an abundance in the sense that it's more than you could ever want. As a matter of fact, within a very short period of time of the children of Israel receiving this manna, they got so bored with it, they got so tired of eating it that they said, we loathe this light bread. And they began to murmur and complain. And the Lord struck a bunch of them and there were 
tens of thousands of people killed in this wrath and judgment uh, that the Lord brought upon the Israelites because they complained about nothing but this manna. So miracles are not as an abundant supply as the blessing of the Lord. Let me turn over to Joshua chapter 5 and show you the difference here. In Joshua chapter 5 is as the children of Israel were leaving the uh, desert land and they were getting ready to enter into the promised land, uh, the Lord was giving Joshua instructions here. And in Joshua chapter 5 and in verse 9, it says, The Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of that place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now this is the end of the miracle of the manna. It had come every single day, six days a week for 40 years. And yet there was an end to it. There is an always an end to miracles. Miracles are temporary. Miracles are just a suspension or a superseding of natural laws. And God does not intend for His natural laws to be permanently done away with. God's the one that created all of the natural laws. He's the one that looked at His creation and said that it's good. And you know what? God is not prone to violate those natural laws. Let me just use some illustrations here. You know if a person, say, is uh, 200 pounds overweight, well, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And we could probably mention a bunch of them. But just a real obvious one is that, you know, you're going to be out of... You aren't going to have very much energy and strength because it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy and strength just to carry around all of this weight. It wouldn't be unreasonable to believe that you have a back problem. If you're carrying... Let's let's just figure this. Just put 200 pounds of weight. Get whatever. Go get some barbells or dumbbells or something and strap 200 extra pounds right here and somehow or another attach it to yourself and then carry that around all day long for uh, a year or two and sleep with that thing on top of you or get to where you have to sleep over on the side. But when you roll over and get out of bed, you got to lift this 200 pounds. Now you do something like that and I can guarantee you, you are going to have a back problem. Now, if you came to me with that back problem, and if you're 200 pounds overweight, since you can't get rid of that 200 pounds instantly, I can't just command it and it just falls off of you, then you know what? I would go ahead and pray with you and pray that God would heal your back. And I would believe God for a miracle. But a, it would take a miracle because it would have to be a suspension and a superseding of natural laws. God didn't make us to carry around 200 pounds of extra weight. Now, God loves them, and because He loves them, He will supply them with a miracle, but that is just a temporary suspension of natural laws. If they keep violating those natural laws and retain that weight and even add to it, they're going to get a back problem back. 
See, a miracle, even though it might help you right now, if you're in pain because of something you've done to yourself, you could receive a miracle and you could be delivered of that pain. Or let's say that a person, you know, has been smoking their entire life and they've got emphysema or they've got lung cancer. I believe that God could supernaturally heal you and deliver you of that thing by a miracle. But if you just keep violating these laws, you're going to have these same physical problems come back and then you're going to have to have another miracle. Now, if you're in a crisis situation and the doctor told you you've got 24 hours to live, then you haven't really got any other options as far as changing your lifestyle and beginning to learn the Word of God and walk in the blessings of God and see things come a different way. So you may have to have a miracle right then. But I would tell you if I had the opportunity that God's best is for you to lose that weight, for you to quit this smoking, for you to do these things and begin to cooperate with the instructions that God's Word gives about how to operate these bodies. And then you could receive your healing not through a miracle but by just uh, having the natural blessing that God has placed in this body it would begin to start functioning and you would get free of all of those things by a blessing. And the good thing about it is that the blessing, once you start operating it, it's something that doesn't quit. It doesn't go away. It doesn't come and go. But miracles are temporary. And a blessing is always more abundant. Like, for instance, the Lord promised the children of Israel that when they entered into the land of Canaan that He would he blessed that land and that it was a land flowing with milk and honey and that they would have all of this. For 40 years they had been eating manna, which was a miracle, but when they entered into the promised land, then they had the abundance, the blessing. Now the blessing of all of the fruit and the vegetables and all of the things that were growing in the land of Canaan you know, just compare that to this little wafer. Now, this wafer was a miracle. I mean, it just miraculously appeared. It only appeared six days out of seven. So anybody who thought that somehow or another this was a phenomenon that just for a 40-year period of time worked out in the desert, there's no way that could happen because just like clockwork, every Sabbath there was no manna. It was a miracle from God. And when the sun rose, the thing just evaporated and it was gone. It was a total miracle and it sustained them. And it must have been very nutritious to be, this is all they had to eat were these little tiny wafers. That was their total diet and yet it sustained these people for 40 years. So there was probably nothing wrong with the taste of it. There was probably nothing wrong with the nutritional value of it. But nonetheless, just because it was the same old, same old every day for 40 years, people got tired of it. Now compare that with all of this abundance, being able to go into the land of Canaan, a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was so productive that when the spies of Israel went in to check out the land, they put one cluster of grapes on a pole between two men and carried it on their shoulder. That cluster of grapes must have been huge. It must have been five or six feet long. No telling what the grapes were like. Man, there was such an abundance. Now see, that's the blessing of God versus the miracle of God. Now again, don't think I'm talking down miracles. If you need a miracle, if you're in a crisis situation and there is no other option and you hadn't got time to learn about the blessings of God, a miracle might be the best for you at this moment. But I'm trying to go beyond that and say that God's best 
is actually for you walking in the blessings of God and not even having to receive a miracle. Now, let me use a passage of Scripture that I was using out of Joshua chapter 5, and this talks about the end of this miracle of the manna. It had been coming and appearing for 40 years, six days a week for 40 years. But it says here in Joshua chapter 5, in verse 11, it says, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now just indulge me for a moment and think with me along this line. The people that entered into the promised land, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, all of the people who entered in were uh, either less than 20 years old when the Israelites sinned and not believing God, uh, Numbers chapter 13, and all of the older people from 20 years old and up had died in the wilderness. So that means that 40 years later after this transgression, the oldest person in that nation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, was 60 years old. And most of them were less than that, and they had spent 40 years eating manna. The vast majority of all of the people that entered into the promised land were below 40 years old. They were born during that period of time in the wilderness. So that means that the vast majority of these people had never eaten anything but manna, And even those who were from 20 years old and downward when this transgression uh, came and God uh, doomed them to wander an extra 40 years in the wilderness, even those had spent the vast majority of their life eating nothing but manna. Every person that was coming into the land of Canaan had spent 40 years eating nothing but manna. Now, this is significant that you get this mindset, that you understand this, because here they have learned to do this. They have done it every day for 40 years. They've eaten this manna. And then all of a sudden, they enter into the promised land. The Lord told them, you're going to eat of the fruit of the land on the next day. So they went out and ate of the fruit of the land, and then the manna just ceased. I mean, one day they had manna, the next day they didn't have manna. The Lord didn't wean them off of this. He didn't give them withdrawals and and things like that, but it was just cold turkey. One day they had manna, the next day they were eating of the uh, fruit of the land. Now, most people would think, well, that was sufficient, man. You would rather have all of this abundance of the land of Canaan. But I'm just saying, knowing people, I minister to people, and people haven't changed that much in thousands of years. You can see some of the same attitudes that these Jews had in the uh, desert, murmuring and complaining. People have those same attitudes today. I just know that there were people among those Jews who had this response, that they thought something like, I'm not going to go out and start eating the fruit of the land and having to start plant crops and prune trees, and gather up fruit, and harvest the grain, and make bread, and do all of these things. Man, I have supernaturally had my needs supplied for 40 years. I just go out and gather up this food, and God rains it down out of heaven. Man, I've lived under the supernatural, miraculous power of God. I'm not going back to being natural. 
I can just guarantee you that there are some Jews that that's probably the response that they had. There was probably people that went out the next day expecting to receive manna and refusing to go back to just doing things normal the way that the rest of the world did. Can you follow what I'm saying right here? And the point that I'm making is that there are people that just refuse to have to do anything in the natural. They wanted everything to be so supernatural. See, there's a direct comparison between this example right here and what I believe is going on in our life. We do have some people today that they just want everything to be supernatural. They want everything to be a lightning bolt, an audible voice out of God, spectacular. And you know what? Even though those kind of things do happen and that God does do miracles, I think that there's a real danger in that kind of a mentality to miss that still small voice of God, to miss the provision of God that just comes where He blesses natural things. It's still God's provision. You know, if you would stop and think about it, to plant a seed and to see that seed germinate and then grow and produce a hundred times as much fruit, as much seed as what you planted. You know what? That's God. In a sense, you could say that's a miracle. It's really not a miracle because it's not a superseding or a suspension of natural laws. It's all involved in natural laws, but they are supernatural natural laws that God created. It still is the provision of God, but it just comes in such a natural way that sometimes people don't They can see all of the trees growing, all of the fruit and all of the vegetables and all of the things that we've got and not even recognize that that is a provision of God. It's not a supernatural provision of God. It's a natural provision, but nonetheless, it is still provision. And some people just want the manna. They don't want the natural provision. I'm saying that the natural provision is more abundant, it's longer lasting, and... It is actually God's preferred method of meeting our needs. And anyway, I've got a lot more that we're going to continue to say about that. Let me just go to this point and make this point. As we start talking about the blessing of God, you need to define and understand the power of a blessing. Now, I've been trying to do this to a degree by just contrasting that miracles are temporary, blessings are longer lasting, miracles aren't as abundant as a blessing, things like this. But let me just show you the power of a blessing. I think that this is really important. And to get this, you're going to have to be able to uh, comprehend some things here that, again, many Christians don't uh, functionally acknowledge this. Blessings basically have to do with words. When we're talking about the blessing of God, we're talking about the divine favor of God that is expressed through His words. Spoken favor. Not just something that He thought, not just something that He feels about us, but a blessing of God is always something that He's spoken. And let me just show you some of the power of a blessing. Look over here in Genesis chapter 12, and let's look at the life of Abraham. And Abraham is just one example. If we had time, you could literally go through thousands of scriptures. I remember when the Lord first showed me this teaching on blessings and miracles that I got on a computer and I printed out every time that the word bless, blessing, blessings, blesseth, according to you know the King James. Uh, I printed out all of those variations of the word bless. 
And I went through and looked up every one of those verses and studied it. And it is just amazing how prevalent that the blessing of God is in Scripture. Now, because we live in a culture where, again, a blessing has to do with words that are spoken. And because in our culture, words don't really mean very much. I mean, that's the reason we have so many lawyers is because nobody's word is worth anything. You have to sign contracts. And then if you have a good lawyer, you can basically get out of any contract because, you know, words just don't mean a lot in our culture. But that's not the way that God is. God's words are important. And we need to adjust to His culture. We need to go back to His way of doing things. And so here are some examples of how God used a blessing to uh, empower a person and to bless their life, to change their life. In Genesis chapter 12, in verse 2, this is the Lord that appeared unto Abram. And He said in verse 2, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. The word bless is talking about speaking positive words, whereas the word curse would be just the opposite of that, speaking evil words. So the Lord here is saying that I will bless you. I'm speaking these words of favor. God's placing His favor on Abraham, and He says, I am going to bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curseth you. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Man, did you just see how many times the word bless and blessed is used in just these two verses? When the Lord appeared unto Abraham and began his dealings with him, he started by saying, Abraham, I'm blessing you. Here is my favor. My blessing is upon you. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. This is kind of a separate teaching. I'm not going to stay on it very long. But you know what? Before you can be a blessing to someone else, you first of all have to be blessed. You can't give away what you don't have. So therefore the Lord says, I will bless you and make you a blessing. And then He says, I'm going to bless whoever blesses you and curse him that curses you. This is God Almighty speaking to Abraham, and He not only said this to Abraham, He goes on and repeats this to His descendants, and this became a blessing that applied to the entire Jewish nation. Now, you know what? I'm not naive enough to believe that everything the Jews do is correct. You know, I love the United States of America, but I don't believe that everything we do is correct. I don't believe that there is any totally 100% righteous nation on the face of the earth. I'm not deceived, naive about that. But I also am influenced by what God says. And I tell you what, there is a blessing on the Jewish nation. And you know what? I was drafted and sent to Vietnam. I didn't like the thought of going to war. I even thought about being a conscientious objector. But as I prayed about it, I thought that's not a scriptural uh, standing. And so I went ahead and went. But you know what? If they would have drafted me and sent me to fight against Israel, I'd have defected. I mean, I am not going to fight against Israel. I am not naive to believe that everything is perfect there. But you know what? I still believe that there's a blessing of God on that nation thousands of years, approximately 4,000 years after God said this to Abraham. I don't know if that impresses you, but that touches me. 
The power of God, once He says this, and this is another point I'll make later in this teaching, the blessing of God, once it's given, it cannot be reversed. Nobody else can reverse it. You can stop it if you quit believing, but nobody else can stop it. Man, this just illustrates to me the power of a blessing. God began to put His favor upon Abraham. And it wasn't because Abraham was the most godly person around. As a matter of fact, right after he received this blessing from God, there was a drought in the land. Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there and to be sustained through this drought. And when he got there, at this time it says that Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. And his wife was 10 years younger than him. So that means that she was about 65 at this time. And when they went down into Egypt... Uh, he told Sarah, his wife, in verse 11, He said unto Sarah, his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they shall kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. You know, that was a rotten thing to do. Sometimes you read things in Scripture and because customs are so different, we just somehow or another gloss it over and think, well, it must not mean what it looks like. No, it's terrible. Abraham was willing to let somebody take his wife and commit adultery with her in order to save his own neck. You know, if that was to happen to me, if I was to go into some other country and because I was afraid of what they were going to do to me because of my wife, Jamie, and I just said, hey, I've never seen her. Help yourself. Do whatever you want to. I guarantee you that'd be a scandal. That's wrong. It's wrong today. It was wrong back then. Pharaoh actually took Sarah and had planned to put her into his harem and make him one of his wives. And you know what happened? God plagued Pharaoh. God appeared unto him a dream and spoke to him. And who got rebuked? Abraham, the man that was really guilty, or Pharaoh? Actually, it was Pharaoh that got rebuked. Not because he was worse or more wrong than Abraham was. You know why? It's because Abraham was blessed by God. God's favor was on Abraham. And the power of a blessing is infinitely greater than even the power of having done what was right. Now, I'm not saying that Abraham was right in this situation. I believe he was wrong. I believe God knew he was wrong. But you know what? God had put his favor upon Abraham. And because of that, God rebuked the Egyptian king and not Abraham. You know, I don't know if you really are getting all of this. I'm trying to explain the superiority of a blessing over a miracle. Once you start flowing in the blessing of God, once God is behind you, once God is promoting you, once God is on your side, God doesn't jump ship every time you make a mistake. God doesn't just say, whoops, you weren't perfect today, therefore my blessings don't operate in your life. The blessing of God isn't based on your goodness and your holiness and whether you do everything just right. It's based on primarily God just chose to put His favor on you and the only thing you have to contribute to it is you just believe it and receive it. As long as you operate in faith and believe that God's blessing is upon you, it will begin to function. And it'll build momentum. 
you'll pick up steam as you go along. And just like Abraham, even when you get into places where you make a mistake, because you're the one that has the covenant, because you're the one that God has placed His favor upon, you'll come out smelling like a rose even when you don't deserve to. And that's good news. I like that. And so we see in the 13th chapter of Genesis, after this blessing that God placed upon Abraham, and then he went down into Egypt, and he came out of there, he actually wound up, because Pharaoh was afraid, because God had rebuked him, Pharaoh wound up giving Abraham all kinds of cattle and and, uh, camels and sheep and manservants and maidservants, slaves. He came out of Egypt filthy, stinking, rich, and he didn't deserve it. It was just because God's blessing was on his life. And he was so wealthy and so prosperous that in the 13th chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham still had his nephew Lot with him. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 12... And verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. God had already told Abraham that. Abraham partially obeyed, but he still had his nephew Lot with him. And yet, even though he wasn't completely obedient to everything God had said, God's favor, God's blessing was still on his life. And he was so prosperous that after coming out of Egypt... Lot and him both had so much cattle, so many herds, that they were overgrazing the land. And they couldn't uh, stay together because there just wasn't enough pasture land to accommodate all of their wealth and all of their cattle and flocks that they had. And so the, the herdmen of Lot began to start fighting with the herdmen of Abram. And when Abram heard about this, he called Lot together and he said, Lot, he said, we're brothers. Let's not be in strife over this. He says, all of this land is before us. He says, you just pick and choose. He says, down here is the valley. And that was around the area of the Dead Sea. Back before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, all of the Dead Sea area was lush and well watered. Matter of fact, this very passage says it was like the Garden of Eden. And so it was well watered, lush, lush pasture land. And he says, you just pick. Over here is the desert. Over here is this lush pasture land. Pick whichever way you want to go. And whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite. Now, did you know what? In the natural, that is not a smooth move. That is not a good decision. If you gave the average person and say, you pick the desert or you pick this well-watered land for your cattle, which way do you think most people would go? You know, for Abraham to be able to offer this choice, he was the one that was in charge. He was the senior person. He was the one that actually had the right to choose the lush pasture land for himself. But he gave his nephew, he gave him, uh, he preferred him above himself and gave him the choice. I'm sure Abram knew which direction he was going to go. And of course, Lot chose this well-watered area down there. This says a lot about Abraham. Now, some people would think, well, it says he wasn't very smart. But no, that's not what it was. You know what he was doing? He was believing the fact that God's blessing was on his life. And it really didn't matter about whether he forced his way and took advantage of other people and stabbed them in the back. He wasn't looking at his own effort as being the source of his prosperity. He was looking to God as being his source. 
And because of that, he was able to say, pick whichever way you want to go. And it doesn't matter how you go. I'm still going to prosper. Now, see, there's two different ways of looking at it. You could say Abraham was stupid in this decision, or this could be an indication of how much he had faith in the fact that God said he would bless him and make his name great and make him a blessing. I believe that this is nothing but an indication of where Abraham was in his faith with God. And to prove that, when you go into the 14th chapter, he did a similar thing by giving away millions of dollars worth of spoil because he says nobody is ever going to say that they're the ones that made Abraham rich. But God is my source. So this would be consistent with that 14th chapter. Abram was showing that he had faith in the blessing of God. And because of that, God just kept prospering him. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that really blesses me. And it goes on to say here in Genesis chapter 13 um, that after Lot left him in verse 14, Genesis 13, 14, it says, The Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward, All the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Now notice that this was right after Lot had left him. Lot went east down into that Dead Sea area and it says, look north, south, east and west. That included the land that Lot was in. Abraham didn't really give up a thing by being generous to to Lot. God went ahead and gave him that entire land. And in verse 16, he says, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So here is the Lord blessing Abraham again. Now this time the word bless isn't used, but nonetheless, it's still the same thing. He was speaking his divine favor before he said he would bless him and make his name great and all nations would be blessed through him. But now he begins to be more specific. He says, this land that you are now in, look north, south, east, and west, and you will obtain all of this land. And then he gave him this promise that if you can count the dust on the face of the earth, so shall your seed be. Now, this was kind of inferred in the previous blessing in Genesis chapter 12 when he says all nations of the earth will be blessed in you. But here it is very specific that your seed is going to number as much as the sand on the seashore. And so once he went ahead and took another step and fulfilled what God had originally led him to do. He told him to leave all of his kindred and all of his family's house and the land that he came out of. He left the land, but he didn't leave all of his kindred. When he took this next step and finally let Lot go and sent Lot away with the best land, then God appeared unto him and there was an even greater blessing beginning to manifest in his life. Now this is another great truth about the blessings of God, that the stronger you get in trusting and believing the blessings of God, the more you cooperate with the instructions that He's given you, then the greater manifestation you see of God's blessing in your life. I think I've made this statement already, and I will 
deal with this in more detail when we talk specifically about Balaam and the children of Israel. But God's blessings are the same from Him towards us, but not all of His children receive the same blessing. Many people don't even understand this difference between a blessing and a miracle. That's the reason I'm teaching on it. Some people who may understand it or have a glimpse of it don't have any faith in it. Their faith may be waning. And because of all of these variables, God's blessing is manifest more in some people's life than others. But the truth is God's blessing is upon all of His children. If you can understand this and begin to start receiving it, putting faith in it, you would see the blessing of God just grow and increase as your faith and trust and reliance in God's blessing increases. See, that's what you see happening in Abraham's life right here. So going down into the 14th chapter, the area where Lot moved to, Sodom and Gomorrah, there were five kings there, and uh, those five kings were overcome by four kings that came against them. The lesser number defeated the greater, which shows that uh, God wasn't with these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a very ungodly area. So because of all of this, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were all taken captive. Well, Abraham armed all of the people that were born and trained to be soldiers in his house. And anyway, he took these armed men and then he had a couple of friends of his who also had servants that he took all of this group and he went down and Abraham conquered these four kings that had come and destroyed that area down around the Dead Sea. And he recovered every one of the people that had been taken hostage. He returned all of the cattle back and uh, all of the spoil. He not only got everything that was stolen from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, but then he got all of the spoil that came from those kings who had conquered them. Now, the Scripture doesn't show us the exact value of this, but if you just think about this, this had to be the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars worth of bounty. And when Abraham came back, the king of Sodom came out and met him. And here's what he said. This is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 21. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. In other words, the king of Sodom recognized that if it hadn't been for Abram, that the king of Sodom wouldn't have gotten anything back. He didn't deserve any of it. Abram actually deserved to take every person as slaves. That's the way it was in those days. But he says, if you'll just give me back the people, then you can have all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the raiment, not only of our people, but of all the people that you conquered. And Abraham responded by saying in verse 22, Unto the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. In other words, Abram gave away the equivalent of millions of dollars worth of spoil that was rightfully his. Now, why did he do it? Because he didn't want it. No, that's not what he said. He specifically said it's so that nobody is going to say they made Abraham rich. In other words, he knew God was his source and he wanted everybody else to know God was his source. And so he basically gave away this millions of dollars worth of bounty because of his trust in what God had said to him, the blessing of God on his life. 
And right after this in the 15th chapter, God appears and confirms and amplifies the blessing because Abraham had just taken another step in trusting the blessing that God had spoken over him. Abraham, when God began to speak His divine favor over him, and that's what a blessing is. You know, we sometimes misuse that word. And, uh, you know, somebody, like if you have a brand new car or something, you'll say, oh, that is really a blessing. But technically speaking, a car, a house, a job, all of these kind of things are not blessings. What they are, it might be a manifestation of God's favor, His blessing in your life. But in itself, it's not a blessing. And to prove that point, if you were to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 there, it talks about how that Christ became a curse for us and He took our curse And then it says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through faith. Now, part of our inheritance is to receive the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? If you look at his cattle, his sheep, his camels, his tents, his clothes as his blessings, why would you want an animal that's been dead for 4,000 years, a tent that is rotten and decayed and clothes and things like this. Those weren't the blessings of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham was the favor of God that produced all of these animals and his riches and his, uh, you know, abundance in all of these areas, not only physically, but also emotionally, spiritually, and all of these kind of things. It's the favor of God that we want. So technically speaking, a blessing is not a thing, but rather it's the favor of God. Let me use a scripture to illustrate this over in Genesis chapter 27. And this is about the grandchildren of Abraham. And of course, Abraham's son was named Isaac. And as Isaac was getting older, I forget the exact details. I have looked all of this up and I know that the things I'm going to say are accurate, but I'm just not sure about the exact year. Isaac was somewhere around 130 years old at this time. And it says in Genesis chapter 27 that his eyesight was dim and he thought that the time of his death was close at hand. And so he called for one of his twins, which was Esau, which was uh, Isaac's favorite son because he was a tough, manly type of guy and he was a hunter And it says here that he loved him because he ate of his venison. And so he asked Esau to go uh, kill an animal, fix the venison the way that he loved it, bring it in. He was going to eat this, and then he was going to bless him before he died. Now, there's a number of things wrong with this. Number one, this wasn't about the time he was going to die. As you study this through, he lived another 40-something years or even longer after that, I think. Uh, Isaac lived to be either 170-something or 180 years old. And so he, he missed it by four decades at least. This shows you that he wasn't inspired by God to do what he did here. Plus, you can't give the blessing that is on your life to another person arbitrarily. God had already spoken that the elder would serve the younger child. Now remember that Jacob and Esau were twins. And Jacob was the youngest of the two twins by just a couple of minutes. And God had already prophesied to the mother, Rebekah, that Jacob would be the one who prevailed and received the blessing of God. And so Isaac was trying to circumvent what God had already spoken 
and just go because he loved Esau because Esau was a man's man and he liked him because, you know, they played ball together. That's the way we would relate it today. You can't just arbitrarily do these kind of things. When you operate in the blessing of God, you don't make God bless anything. You find out what He's already blessed and then you just cooperate with what God's decision already is. So Isaac was totally out of line in this situation. There are some things in this account that we should not emulate. But here is my point in bringing this out. In the 27th chapter, when Isaac told Esau to go get this animal, kill it, fix this food, and then bring the food in so that he could bless his son before he died, Esau's mother, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, heard this And, of course, she had had a word from God, and she preferred the younger of the two children. And so she had uh, Jacob go get uh, two lambs out of the flock, and she fixed them. And apparently, you know, she had lived with Isaac by this time for 90 years. And apparently she knew exactly how to fix food the way that he liked it, and she was able to fix these two lambs, make it appear or taste to Isaac as if it was venison, which is another commentary on how old he was. Apparently he wasn't tasting very good. All of his senses weren't working real well. But anyway, she had Jacob go do this, and then he went in and pretended to be Esau. Now it says in the first part of this chapter that uh, Isaac's eyes were dim because of old age, and so he was blind or close to blind. And so um, that wasn't a factor, but... As a father, I'm sure he could tell a difference between the voice, between the mannerisms, the number of things between Esau and Jacob. And so when Jacob heard this plot of his mother, immediately he said that uh, what happens if, uh, in, in verse 12, this is Genesis 27:12, my father peradventure will feel me and I shall seem to him a deceiver and I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. Now, the reason this is significant is because the previous verse had said Esau was a hairy man and Jacob was a smooth man. So the mother made a decision that she was going to take the skins of these lambs that she had killed and put them upon the back of the neck and the back of the hands and the arms of Jacob. And if uh, Isaac felt of him, she would think it was Esau. So anyway, this is the plot, this is the story, but here's the reason I'm trying to get all of this across, that this was at great, great personal risk to Jacob and Rebekah. They stood the chance of being cursed, they stood the chance of incurring the wrath of Isaac in this situation, and you know what, most people just wouldn't have gone to all of this effort. See, in our mindset, a blessing is not really very much, it's just words. Who cares what a person says? But you know what? It's not our culture that is correct. This is Bible culture. God is the one who put down these principles. God is the one who instilled these things. God is the one who put the importance on a blessing. And there was a history in this family of Abraham of the power that was in a blessing. Now, Jacob went about it the total wrong way. You can't get the blessing of God through lies and deception. So I'm not endorsing that. But I am saying the importance that they placed on a blessing is the right attitude towards a blessing. This shows how important, how powerful a blessing was that people were willing to literally risk their life, incur the wrath of their siblings and do all of these things trying to get their father's blessing. 
So anyway, here's Jacob. He came in and because Esau had to go out and hunt his venison and kill it and prepare it for his father, therefore Jacob was able to get these lambs and have his mother prepare them quicker than uh, Esau was. And so he came in, he presented himself to his father. His father was shocked that he had found it so soon. And Jacob lied unto him. And first of all, he said, I'm your firstborn. And Isaac was skeptical. He says, well, how did you find it so quickly? And he says, oh, God brought it to me. Line number two. You know, this is not the way to go about receiving the blessings. But again, it illustrates his motivation, the priority that he put on getting the blessing of God. And so it says in verse 21 that Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And remember that what the deal was, his hands and the back of his arms were covered with the skin of a lamb. Again, showing you that Esau must have been one hairy dude. (laughs) Amen. And so in verse 23 it says, He discerned him not because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And here's the blessing that he said. He said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am a straight lie. He says, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's venison that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him and he did eat and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said unto him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God, give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Now, Isaac thought that when he was saying this, he was saying it to Esau. Therefore, Jacob would be the, his mother's son who would bow down to him. But of course, the opposite was true. This was actually Jacob and therefore this was placing a curse upon Esau, Isaac's favorite son. And he said, Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. Now this is a part of the blessing of Abraham that was given by God to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and it was passed on down to Isaac. Now here he is passing this on down to Jacob. And in verse 30 it says, And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, And Jacob was scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting, and he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled, very exceedingly, and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Now again, I'm wanting to point out a couple of things. First of all, when Isaac realized that he had been deceived by Jacob 
and that he had given the blessing to the wrong person. It says that he trembled exceedingly and he was bothered by this. Again, you know, with most of us, if we did believe in the power of a blessing and if for some reason we were deceived and gave the blessing to the wrong person, you know what most of us would do? We'd just say, time's out, king's ex, I I didn't mean it. I take that back. Here, I'm going to bless you instead. Now see, again, that reveals a wrong attitude. And Isaac's response here reveals that once a blessing is given, it can never be reversed. And it's very important that you realize that. And notice Esau's reaction. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. Now again, how many of us, if our brother came and stole the blessing, most of us wouldn't care. For one thing, it doesn't mean anything to us. But if you did understand that a blessing was something to be desired, it wouldn't affect most of us that we would cry with a bitter and exceeding cry. You know what this is illustrating is that this was super important. These people realized that what made their grandfather Abraham great was the blessing of God. And what made Isaac great was the blessing of God. Matter of fact, entire kings, nations would come out to Isaac and to Abraham and say, you are the blessed of the Lord. They said this specifically to Isaac, that you are now the blessed of the Lord after Abraham had died. And they said, make a covenant with us that you'll never do anything to harm us and we'll promise to never harm you. Because they, not only Abraham and Isaac, but even the nations that they sojourned among, among, they realized the favor and the blessing of God upon them and they credited it all to being the blessing of God on their life. It wasn't Abraham's great wisdom or his holiness or his shrewd business dealings. It was the favor of God on him. He would make mistakes and lie about his wife and be put in a situation where he could have lost his wife. He could have destroyed the whole plan of God. And instead, he'd come out smelling like a rose, not because he was the sharpest guy or the best acting person around, but God had put favor upon him and Abraham believed in the blessing of God. And because of it, he just was like cream. He rose to the top, regardless of whatever situation you put him in. He gave the best land to his nephew and yet he rose to the top and he prospered. And everything that happened in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down through the nation of Israel, it wasn't because of their holiness, their goodness, their shrewdness. It was the blessing of God. It's the favor of God. I tell you, there is power in a blessing. And I think most of us have underestimated it. Most of us have desired to just receive an instantaneous, miraculous intervention of God But I tell you, there's a better way to prosper, not only financially, but emotionally, socially, in every area of our life. And that's to learn the blessing, the favor of God that has been released to us through His words. And when you begin to start trusting and relying upon the words of favor that God has spoken over you, you will prosper more than you would ever prosper through a miracle in physical financial, emotional, social ways in every area of your life and it'll be more abundant and it'll actually prevent crisis.